we come together to chapter 10 this morning in verse 1, we won't be uh, covering the whole section, but we'll just be in verses 1 through 8. Let me read this for us. This is what God's Word says, beginning in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on, on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, would you open our eyes now to see and understand and to receive your word by faith. Teach us the things that you want us to know and make us what you want us to become for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we come this morning to the opening of the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And uh, if you've been with us for the last couple of months throughout our study, you may be feeling a bit of deja vu. Because here in this passage, Jesus appoints a number of his disciples and commissions them to go and proclaim the gospel of his kingdom to all kinds of towns and places and confers his divine authority and power upon them to act in his stead as his emissary and ambassador. And all of this is nearly identical to what we saw at the opening of Luke chapter 9 when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles in the same manner, hence the deja vu. And some of the instructions are nearly identical uh, word for word. But what's the difference here? Why do we see something like this again and even recorded for us again? Well, the main obvious difference is the number of his disciples that are sent on each occasion. In Luke chapter 9, it's the 12, but here it is 72. Now, what does that matter other than just it being a different point of detail? Well, in all likelihood, this number 72 is symbolic in representing a different emphasis of this mission, namely the international scope of it. You see, back when the 12 were sent out in Luke chapter 9, we see explicitly stated in Matthew's parallel account of Luke 9, which is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, in which Jesus, as he sends out the 12, he instructs them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so when the twelve were sent out, there was an initial focus on just the Jews. And that's probably why he chose twelve to correspond to the twelve tribes of Israel. But here in Luke 10, Jesus sends out another round of his emissaries, but this time 72, improbable reference to Genesis chapter 10, in which we find a list of all the nations of the earth at the time coming from the sons of Noah after the flood. And there we see 
72 nations listed. Well, as a technical side note, I feel the need to at least mention this. Uh, most of your translations probably say 72, as does mine, but some of yours might say 70, especially if you have a King James. Uh, it's a very complicated textual reason for why. It has to do with the manuscript evidence, and I won't bore you with it, but if I can keep it simple, I actually think that the textual debate all the more suggests an intentional reference to Genesis chapter 10. Because in Luke 10, uh, the question is, is it 72 or 70 that Jesus appointed? But even in Genesis chapter 10, depending on whether you're looking at the Hebrew text or the Greek version of the Old Testament, the chapter in, in Genesis 10 will list either 70 or 72 nations respectively. And so in my opinion which is worth less than two cents, uh, it seems to me that the variance of the two different numbers in Luke 10 may actually be corresponding to the same variance in Genesis chapter 10, thus further reinforcing their connection. But now that I've bored all of your minds uh, in just 30 seconds, which is a world record, uh, technicalities aside, the point is that by sending 72 disciples, Jesus seems to be broadening the scope of this next mission in which he intends to reach all kinds of people, not just the Jews, to reach all nations in a microcosmic, prototypical fashion. In other words, this time it's exclusive not, to not only the people of Israel, but even to the Samaritans, to the other Gentile regions, to all of these different places that Jesus was about to go. In fact, when Jesus says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, he's actually borrowing the language of the Jewish culture and thinking of his day, which was to use the metaphor of sheep and wolves to refer to God's people and the Gentile world, respectively. And so here, in Luke 10, Jesus sends out this greater multitude with the intent to reach all the nations in a nascent form with no ethnic restrictions as before, following the order of the gospel going first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, just like we see in Paul's letter in Romans chapter 1. Now, why is this important? Because the sending of the 72 or 70 or whatever you have it is essentially a nascent form of the Great Commission, which later, after his resurrection, Jesus will formally issue in Matthew chapter 28. To all his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And if that's the case, that here Luke 10 is a preview of the Great Commission, then the principles laid forth here are immediately relevant to us, the church, who has directly received that Great Commission. Now, what is the main point that Jesus is making in these instructions to the 72? What, what is the mindset that he's instilling in them as he sends them off? It's this. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm sending you to do the work of the kingdom because that's what it means to be my disciple, to put your hand to the plow as we saw at the very end of chapter 9. And it is a glorious work for which you are inadequate. You're rescuing souls from death to life. You're carrying the kingdom of God, the powers of heaven to the ends of the earth. You can't do it on your own. But don't worry. Fret not. The burden is not ultimately on your shoulders. The king is sending you, but the king is with you 
You don't need to be extraordinarily capable. You only need to be ordinarily faithful to the one who sends you. That's all it takes. Just willingness and obedience and faithfulness. You're an average Joe? Perfect. The Lord loves to use the ordinary. And I really hope this encourages you because perhaps you're looking in the mirror and you question often your fitness and effectiveness in being God's servant, whether it's with respect to the church or just in your own personal lives and the way God has called you to live. And you think, well, what am I really good for? I mean, I don't have much to offer. I'm just struggling to, to figure out this Christian life and just to, to stay on the course. I'm not much. Bingo. And you're exactly the kind of servant that God wants to use. Because through the ordinary you, God's glory and power is put on maximum display. That's the way he has designed it. Because all of your value and all of your efficacy as a servant is not based on you, but the gospel in you. If you're born again, you've received the gospel by faith, you have everything you need to be useful to Him. You are already everything you need to be useful for His purposes. Because the basic essence of laboring for His kingdom is summed up in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, there's a lot going on here in Jesus' instructions, but the bread and butter of what they're called to do, the 72, is to tell the world of the truth of who Jesus is, that he is a savior of the world, and that it is through him that God rescues sinners from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. And so verse 9, it says that if the people receive you, say to them, The kingdom of God has come upon you. And down in verse 16, it says, The one who hears you, hears me, receives me. But the one who rejects you. And so to receive God's promises, to be saved by Him is by hearing. It is the message that is sent from our lips. But we must understand that the power to snatch sinners from the darkness and to transfer them into the domain of Christ, it is all contained in the message, not dependent on the messenger. Which means it doesn't matter what kind of a messenger you are, young, old, rich, poor, learned, unlearned, all that matters is the integrity of that message in your lips and in your life. And it is your willingness to disseminate it to the world. If you're ordinary, if you're insignificant and inadequate, that's perfectly fine. Because it is the gospel in you and it is the gospel preached from you that is extraordinary and life-changing and earth-shattering in its significance. In fact, notice in verse 1, in sending the 72, Jesus sent them two by two. Now why? Well, sure, it's always good to have a buddy, a companion when you travel. It's always nice to have accountability in the Christian walk. But more than that, this two-by-two pairing comes from the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 19. 
in which God established there a precedent in Israel that in order to confirm the truth in the court of law, there must be two or three witnesses, that a single witness shall not suffice. And so Jesus sent the 72 as pairs so as to send a plurality of eyewitness testimonies wherever they went. And it was the Old Testament manner of demonstrating what we are preaching is the absolute undeniable truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who calls sinners to himself that they might have life in him. And church, the significance of this is this, that we have today this in the fullest sense, don't we? What we have in the New Testament, our Bibles, is a vast plurality of eyewitness apostolic testimonies written by apostles who are with Jesus. Matthew, Peter, John, James. Even the Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Christ, appeared to him after his ascension. There's a reason why the New Testament is not one long book just by one person, like the Book of Mormon, written by Joseph Smith. But it is a collection of various authors, and it is all for our certainty and conviction, and that they all together testify to the same thing. They pass the cross-examination test. Because they were all with him. They saw him. And this is why the Apostle John begins his first letter in this way. That which we have heard. That which we have seen with our eyes. That which we have looked upon. That which we have even touched with our own hands. Concerning the word of life. We proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the power of Scripture's testimony of Jesus of Nazareth. That He is factually God the Son, who, who, who came in, in human flesh to redeem sinners from their darkness and peril. Listen, when you go evangelize to your non-Christian friends, family, neighbors, you don't need to be apologetic about the Bible. This is fact. It says what it says because it's the truth. Preach it with truth and power and conviction because that's what it is. Because God has not made the gospel hard to believe, you see. There is an intrinsic testifying power to it because it is the plain truth. And the Spirit of God bears witness to the Word whenever it is preached. And in the same way as a church, look, all we need is to preach forth the word. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. So we don't need to embellish the ministry of this church with cool programs and concert-like worship bands and smoke machines and bright lights. I've got to say that these lights are pretty bright up here. I feel like I'm at the dentist sometimes. But look, we don't need to... Oh, thank you. We don't need to be exceptionally eloquent and creative and, and, and gifted in oration or anything of that sort because the power is contained in the message. This is why God can use weak little lambs like us 
to send us out in the midst of wolves because it's not up to the lamb. But as long as the sheep know how to totter over a little bit to the shepherd and just nudge people into the direction and point people to the shepherd, that's all you need. Now in this sense, God has made our task as the church not very difficult. Have you ever thought about that? He doesn't call us to be extraordinarily intelligent to do His work. To the contrary, 1 Corinthians 1 says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He doesn't need it. And He actually avoids it. God doesn't call us to have the highest IQ or the EQ. We don't have to learn rocket science before we can be of useful service to Him. He just calls us to be faithful, to deliver the content. And we don't have to come up with it on our own. Like you don't need to be a brilliant poet or a literary genius to work as a mailman. You just need to have hands and feet and know how to stick the thing faithfully into the right mailbox and simply be willing to do the job. And it is the author and the sender of the mail. The, the one who composes the letter, he will do all the work of speaking to the recipient. And so God does to the hearts of those who hear. It is his words that are brilliant and life-changing and imbued with heavenly wisdom and power. You and I only need to pass it along and dutifully put it into the right slot of the listener's ears and God will work at the listener's heart and soul. You see, God's kingdom work, as great and grand as it is, it doesn't take exceptional prowess or aptitude. It takes basic faithfulness and obedience. And if that's the case, the question is simply, are we being faithful to carry it to the world around us? That is how the church grows. It is not by gaining a footing in, in the platforms of the world and having a loud megaphone and a loudspeaker, but it is by the simple propagation of the gospel from ordinary folk like you and me. God loves to use the weak. He loves to put his treasures in fragile jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. And that's what's being accentuated from verse 2, the, the reality of our weakness as his laborers. It says in verse 2 that Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The work of God's kingdom is likened to a vast harvest field where the demand outpaces the supply. Now, for one thing, Yes, this verse is reminding us of the urgency of every believer needing to put his hand to the plow and that there's a great work to be done and we need all hands on deck to minister to the vast number of souls that remain unconverted all around us. But I think an important point that Jesus is also making is to set our expectations that the odds are indeed stacked against us. Because after all, look through the Bible the true people of God have always been just this small remnant amongst the rest of the population. A minority that is outnumbered. Those who are just on the narrow path compared to everyone else on the wide path. That is to say, 
the world to which we have been called to minister, to win to Christ, and the life of faith that we have been called to live for Christ, will always seem to be daunting and formidable. And for this reason, the instruction Jesus gives is not primarily, therefore, plow earnestly and engineer a clever solution to complete the work. But he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into that harvest. In effect, Jesus is saying, I know it's overwhelming, but that's by design so that you would remember who is the sovereign Lord over even the work that he has called you to do. We must rely on him. And never forget that God is the one who is ultimately at work, and we're simply the instruments of his working. Because what are we to pray for? We're to pray for the Lord to send out more laborers. Now, how would God do that? It's by him converting more sinners. Him Rescuing more into his kingdom. And then him calling them to now go and serve the will of the king who has saved them. It's really everything. You see, we can't actually do that much. We don't have that much to offer to God. Never think that God needs you for anything. But in the end, he needs to be the one to make happen everything that he intends to use us for. God must save god must regenerate god must convict and that is why the greatest labor we can do individually and as a church is at the end of the day just to humble ourselves in prayer it's not a very glamorous work it can feel very repetitive and you don't know when you'll see immediate fruit but as we pray for the ministry of this church to pray for the lord to sanctify the believers in this church, and to open the eyes of unbelievers, we do so in recognition that He is the Lord of the harvest, and we need Him to accomplish His will in us. And it is the congregation that gets this, that God is most readily pleased to use. Again, as I've said many times before, it is to our spiritual advantage that we are a simple, small church who has just some basic aims to love Christ, to love one another, and be faithful to preach His Word. And that's about it for us. That's all we can do. You know, there's nothing really attractive about us in the eyes of the world. We're we're not the talk of the town. And all we can do is just entrust this ministry into God's hands and and see what He does with our church. And church, has he not blessed us in our small little faithfulness? I mean, look at what God has graciously done for us in just the past year. He has been so kind to sustain us and even to grow us more than we could anticipate. You see, weakness and insignificance in the Christian life and ministry is something to be embraced because then we are most out of the way in God's glory And sufficiency can rightfully take center stage. I mean, this is the pattern all throughout the Bible, isn't it? You remember Gideon in the book of Judges? God said, hey Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver my people, Israel, from the hand of the Midianites who are oppressing them. 
One problem. I notice that you have 32,000 men with you who are prepared for battle. That's too many. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And so I want you to go tell some of them to go home if they wish. If they're afraid, that's okay, go home. And so 22,000 left and 10,000 remained, which is not a very big army, especially against the Midianites. And when God looked at the 10,000, he said, you know what? There's still too many. Why don't you go down to the water and I'll show you which ones I want for the battle. And so a sorting process took place and all that there was left was 300 men. And then God said, okay, now we're ready. That's more like it. Let's go. 300 of your men against the vast multitude of the Midianite army. And so they came upon the Midianites. And as God instructed, all they did was blow some trumpets. And the Lord threw the Midianites into such chaos and confusion that they started killing each other. Gideon's boys barely lifted a finger. They didn't even have a weapon in their hands. They just had trumpets. It was closer to an orchestra than an army. But God whittled down Gideon's army so that it would be crystal clear who was the one who accomplished the victory. And wow, I guess we got strobe lights now. (laughs) I suppose we are now embellishing the ministry of this church. If you could turn off the strobe lights, that would be very much appreciated before I uh, unleash myself into a seizure. But in any case, in the very same way as he dealt with Gideon, Here, Jesus tells the 72, verse 3, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you purposefully helpless, weak, frail. And so he says, I want you to carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He was stripping them of their own resources. Now, obviously, this was a unique instruction given to just these 72 at this moment in time. This was not an absolute prescription for the normative Christian experience. You can keep your sandals on if you wore them. Please keep them on, actually. But the principle here is that self-deficiency and inadequacy is the optimal mindset. Because then we learn to entrust everything to God, that He would do His work through us. Christian, has God put you in a season and situation in life where you feel helpless and incapable? You don't know what to do. If so, have you considered that he has put you in the most ideal situation, even though you don't feel like it? And he has put you there on purpose, and he wants you to spend more time praying instead of planning and fretting. Because he can accomplish more in just the answering of your prayers than all of your frantic scheming. Planning is good. But what is better is to entrust it all to God and to submit to His will. And so long as you are faithful to Him and His will, His grace will be sufficient to carry you. And what Jesus is is emphasizing here in this odd instruction is that very point. He says, greet no one on the road. Again, this was an instruction specific to this particular one-time mission of the 72 because Jesus was conveying the principle 
Don't get sidetracked from the big picture and the ultimate goal of glorifying God. Stay faithful and focused. And that's certainly the case, the instruction for the church. Stay locked in on the singular mission of the gospel. You want God to bless your church? Just preach the gospel. Don't get distracted with all the stuff in the world, all the chatter. Jesus is saying, just do what I've told you to do. Don't fancy yourself with the musings of worldly sidelines. You'll just end up being distracted from your focus on the gospel. Like if I can just say, based on what Jesus said, I feel the need to insert this, that as bizarre as this instruction sounds of, of greeting no one on the road, I find it to be incredibly relevant to our time today. Because I have been stunned by the lack of discernment amongst church leaders, especially in the last couple of years, in light of all of the socio-political hubbub about racism. Because so much of the church has become sidetracked, pulling over to the side from running the race faithfully to listen to the chit-chat of the world's musings about human worth and righteousness and justice. And now you have churches saying, well, we need to participate in these social agendas and listen to the world's philosophies and instructions and theories about racism, and what that is, and justice, because we need to learn from them. And it's not enough just to believe the gospel. We need to partake in these agendas. And if not, then we have an incomplete gospel. Evangelical leaders are saying this. We need to learn from the world in this respect. No, we don't. Are you out of your spiritual mind? We never needed the world to tell us that all mankind is created in the image of God. And thus, of equal intrinsic worth as his image bearers. That is the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 predates this country's existence. And all of the politics with, by millennia. What can the God-denying world possibly teach us about the value of human life that the Bible hasn't already said? And it's very ironic given that the world that is now lecturing us on humanity is the same world that refuses to recognize the humanity of children that are still in the womb. We are the ones, church, who need to tell the world the truth that God is the creator and we are created in his image. And the truth is that all mankind has fallen in sin, totally depraved down to his very nature. We are not good, but we are so rotten and corrupt to the core that such vile wickedness like racism could exist. And it is only by the new birth in Christ, only by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, can there be any hope of true healing and change as we walk in obedience to the Creator once again. This is simply the same message that has stood the test of time for 2,000 years, and it will never grow out of relevance. It will never need to be supplemented by the world's ever-changing theories and ideologies. Scripture is sufficient. The church is not called to be creative and innovative in its message, always adapting to whatever is the latest trend. If it's new, 
It's probably not true. The church is called to simply guard the good deposit entrusted to her, to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. And so as long as we are faithful to hold fast to the gospel and to proclaim it, we should never mind whatever is said of us. Oh, you're on the wrong side of history. You're outdated. You're archaic. We, we should never mind the fact that we are not given a seat in, uh, at the table of the world. That we have no position of influence or, or some platform. God doesn't need any of that. We don't need the world's approval or partnership to minister to the world. We're God's church. He will take care of us. He will bless us and use us for His purposes and provide for us with no help from the world. And that's the sense of Jesus' words beginning in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house, and whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, there's a lot we could talk about here, but I want for us to see the big picture that Jesus says this in light of the 72 being sent out with nothing in their pockets, stripped of their resources to be able to provide for themselves. But obviously, well, it's a long journey. They'll need a place to stay. They'll need food and drink to have the strength to carry out their labors. How is it going to come about? How will their needs be met from the hands of those who receive the gospel? It is through the generosity and hospitality of those whom God has worked to soften their hearts such that when the 72 bring the message to them, that they might welcome the messengers in peace rather than in hostility and that they would receive the message of the gospel by faith and out of their joy and gratitude for the ministry of the gospel that these would would cheerfully give of themselves to support the work and the workers for the laborer deserves his wages you see the point here god is saying he will take care of his own through his own sanctified means we do not need to rely on the world for its resources and support. The ministry of the church is to be sustained solely by the, from, you, from a financial sense, by the worshipful generosity and contributions of God's people. That's probably why Jesus says, don't go from house to house. Not only is he saying, be content with what you get, don't go looking for a better uh, accommodation or situation, but also he's saying, Don't go campaigning around town, knocking on every door for donations to support the mission for which I send you. No, even the sustenance and daily provision must be by faith. Being entrusted to God that he will work in the hearts of his people that they might willingly and sacrificially desire to partake in the ministry through their giving. Listen, If you're here 
and you're not a Christian, I want to make it loud and clear. We don't want your money. I don't care if you're a billionaire and you have a spare couple hundred grand to give to some nonprofit as a tax write-off. We don't want it. Maybe some of us here, no, 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 please send it our way. No, 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 we really don't want it. We don't want a penny from you because what we want solely is the free will offerings of God's people who give prayerfully as an act of worship to Him. And oh, what God can do with just five loaves and two fish that are offered to Him in faith and in love. We want none of your money. God wants none of your money. He needs none of it. Instead, non-Christian, He calls you to come and buy without money and without price the food that your soul needs, as Isaiah 55 says. To come and receive the gift of His righteousness for your unrighteous soul. To receive the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' work on the cross. That you might be reconciled to God and that you might become a son of peace with Him. And then you will taste the joy of living for a purpose that is bigger than your little life. The purpose of God's kingdom on earth and the privilege of partaking in such a worthy heavenly cause. You see, church, it is such a gracious thing that God has called us to serve Him. And both in our lives individually and as a church corporately, the Lord Jesus has commissioned us to the greatest labor and service to Him, for which we are inadequate and for which we are insufficient. But let us never forget that He is sufficient. And let us remember what are probably the most important parts of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, but the parts that we are most prone to forget, which is the first and last part. We like to quote the middle section. But the Great Commission reads in Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, here's the first part, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptize them and teach them. And here's the last part. And behold, I, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, I am with you always. That is the most important part of the Great Commission. Before we get to the imperative, it is the indicative of His grace and His abiding presence with us. We toil and labor for His kingdom in in this life, but let us always remember that the King is with us, with His own hands wrapped over ours on the plow. And He shall reign forever, and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, through our lives over which He rules in love. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, thank You that even the work to which You have called us to do, You have not left us to ourselves, but You continue to testify to us time and time again that You are faithful, that You are sufficient, and that You are good. 
Help us to trust you, to abide in you, and let this encourage us to remain faithful to your will. And Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, would you set it apart? These ordinary elements to use them to remind us of your great sufficiency, that you are the one who is always giving to us and that we are to receive all things with joy and gratitude by faith and that that should empower us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.